This is a broadcast of Holland United Church of Christ. At Holland UCC, we seek to open the mind and engage the heart. We are a community of justice, peace, and affirmation in Holland, Michigan, where everyone is welcome to the table. Words of Integration and Guidance by Cornell West. Following Jesus requires a radical, childlike sense of faith and wonder, and a mature effort to pick up our cross and bear the cost. This is not to be confused with a childish dogmatism that trumps mystery, or a will to power that celebrates worldly success at the expense of spiritual integrity. For us, Constantinian Christianity produces people well-adjusted to injustice and well-adapted to indifference. Prophetic Christianity produces people maladjusted to greed, indifference, and fear. We vowed to love our crooked neighbors with our crooked hearts. We believe that if the kingdom of God is within us, then everywhere we go should leave a little heaven behind. A reading of scripture from Psalm 96, 1 through 9. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare her glory among the nations, her marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before her. Strength and beauty are in her sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in holy splendor. Tremble before her, all the earth. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Chapter 22, verses 15 through 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted to entrap him, Jesus, in what he said. So they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are sincere, and teach the way of God in accordance with truth, and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why are you putting me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Then he said to them, Whose head is on this? And whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Then he said to them, Give therefore to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, and they left him and went away. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. Jesus has been set up for a trap. And the trap is one that has continued from the days of Jesus, centuries and centuries forward to today, where Cornell West reminds us of the trap that still stands in front of the church. What belongs to Caesar? What belongs to God? 
Cornell West points out that ever since the Emperor Constantine, the church has had a muddled, complicated relationship with power. Ever since Constantine said, Christianity is my religion, and his predecessor Theodosius said, Christianity is all of our religion, the church has noted a particular brand of power and privilege throughout the centuries that has made what Cornell West would call prophetic Christianity an uncomfortable irritant at, at best and enemy at worst. Indeed, Jesus is being trapped. There is no good answer here. The parties of his day, the two groups that, uh, that show up to Jesus, the Pharisees and the Herodians, are not typically people you would see together. In fact, most of the time, these two groups were opponents. The Herodians were the people who followed King Herod and believed that they should give themselves over to the political powers of the day, whereas the Pharisees believed that the political powers of the day were corrupt and evil and needed to be resisted by means of personal morality and personal righteousness. In fact, it is they are brought together by a parable that Jesus has already told, a parable about a wedding. It's the story that occurs right before this one. It tells the story of a king who throws a wedding and invites everyone to it, all of his friends at least, and none of them want to show up and invites, therefore, other groups of folks to join in as well. The Pharisees and the Herodians and the other main powerful people of the day heard this parable and knew it was about them. That Jesus was radically redefining who's in and who's out and wonders, what if we're all invited? This did not bode well for the powers that be of the day. And so this is where the rest of the gospel chapter unfolds a series of challenges, each from different groups. Today, we get the question of, so should we pay taxes? Of course, it doesn't start with the challenge, right? No good trap is set by starting with the challenge. You attract more flies with honey than vinegar or something around those lines. And so they say that Jesus is an unbought leader. He is the ideal leader that the people have been waiting for. Continuing with the ideas of Cornell West, the Pharisees and the Herodians say Jesus is the ideal leader who loves the people enough and respects the people enough to be unbought, unbound, unafraid, and unintimidated to tell the truth. And they say, you, perfect leader, the one we might have been waiting for, what do you think about taxes? Now, this is, in fact, a loaded question. Before the life of Jesus, there was a Pharisee named Saduk who joined up with a zealot named Judas to overthrow the tax system not too long ago. The presence of a Pharisee with a Herodian means there is no right answer. The Herodians were loyal to Herod, who represented the interests of the Hasmonean dynasty. The Hasmoneans were the people who took the priestly powers that be and brought them into the imperial power into what Marcus Borg would call a complete domination system. The Sadducees, or the chief priests, were given a seat at the imperial table, and so they would stay loyal. In fact, the Hasmonean-empowered Sadducees declared that the prophets were not actually scripture. 
silencing much of God's call for justice in favor of a sacrificial system which centered on coming to the temple, paying your taxes, giving your sacrifice, and going home feeling better. And they were in a constant, perpetual state of, of messing up and having to make up for messing up and lived in this constant cycle, which made the domination system of the Roman Empire work out all the better. On Saturday, or the Sabbath, you go deal with the religious empire, and then Sunday through Friday, you get to be under the control of the imperial power. It worked out quite well. The Pharisees, on the other hand, once again, believed that the Sadducees had become corrupted and that the imperial powers were a bad thing. The Pharisees decided to take over what little space they had left. The Herodians and the Sadducees owned the temple, and that was a big deal. But there were these new buildings called synagogues, where people would get together and they would, they would get together and study together. They would do business together. They, it was a community center, not unlike the building that we are in today. People could come together and do things together. And so the Pharisees took that place and created a different kind of worship setting where study and personal morality took the, uh, took the center stage. Of course, the Pharisees then became the heroes to the common people. Because while the priests were walking around in flowing robes and were making all their money off of religious taxes that were a subset of the imperial taxes, the Pharisees lived more simply. They said everyone has access to God. And they also began to, began to add some rules to the law, to the Torah. <coughs> the Pharisees said, we are in this situation because we have done wrong. They read the prophets and said, we have failed to live up to the demands of the law, and we don't want this to happen again. And so they created what they called a hedge around the law. So while it was unlawful to work on the Sabbath, the Pharisees detailed exactly how many steps you could take on the Sabbath before it was considered work. The law said, bring 10% of what you own to the temple. The Pharisees said, yes, and that even includes the herbs growing in your garden. You should snip off 10% of your herbs and bring those in as well. The Pharisees, however, lacked the imagination to consider what a political imagination would look like. They lacked uh, a vision for what um, community life could be like beyond these demands of personal morality. And so a new kind of empire began to form. After all, the synagogue was the center of community life, and the Pharisees suddenly found themselves in power in the synagogue. Meaning, as frequently happened, particularly in the Gospel of John, people get thrown out of the synagogue. A new religious empire has been formed that the Pharisees are running. And if you did not live up to their standards, they would label you a sinner and say you are no longer able to be in the synagogue. You are cut off from business, from family, from friends, and most importantly, from God. The trap that Jesus found himself in was that these two factions, these two empires, normally empires at war, were standing right next to each other, and there was therefore no right answer. If you said yes to taxes, you were saying yes to the Herodians and setting yourself up against the religious empire, against the, the people who died fighting for their freedom. If you said no to taxes... One joined the Pharisees' religious empire and against the political one. 
So what do you do? Do you just throw your lot in with one empire and say, we'll just make do with what we can? Or do you walk the route of Jesus who rejects both empires? Who rejects the either or? For Jesus being cryptic, saying, what does Caesar really own anyway? These coins that have his face on them? What does God own anyway? Does Caesar own nothing except for these coins that only have value because we give them value? Is Jesus saying that people should pay their taxes? Is Jesus Jesus saying people shouldn't pay their taxes? No wonder they left amazed. Perhaps a better word translated there is bewildered. Maybe they left and had the same questions I did. So, what did he say? Did he actually, did he answer the question? And the answer is yes, just not in the way that they wanted to choose the either or. For Matthew, the gospel, this is a setup for the church. Matthew is the gospel of the church. We, we have to reckon as the church that the way of Jesus that collides with empires, both religious and political, Jesus remains a stubborn iconoclast, even in the most institutional of Gospels, where Jesus talks about the organization of the church more than anywhere else. Jesus juxtaposes his kingdom, or kingdom, against the empires, both religious and political. Empires were firm. Who is in? Who is out? Who pays taxes? Who gets the taxes? Jesus is not so concerned about that question. Jesus tells parables in Matthew about weeds that are growing together with wheat, and whereas the gatherers say, let's just pull all the weeds out. Let's destroy the bad people. Let's get rid of the bad ones. Get them out of our community. Jesus says, nope, let them grow together. Jesus also tells the parable of a vineyard where everyone, the people who've been working all day and the people who've been working only an hour, are paid the same amount. In the Sermon on the Mount, the most prolific section on Matthew, Jesus inverts traditional power structures in a way that is still revolutionary 20 centuries later. In this passage today, the church is invited to wrestle with power structures. How do we interact with everyday realities of empire, paying taxes, especially when we know that our money is going to fund initiatives that contradict our understanding of the life and witness of Jesus. That the money we send in will be used to destroy when Jesus brings life. When the money we send will fund a war machine when Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The scripture here doesn't give us an answer, only a riddle. So let's play it out. How has the church answered the riddle? throughout history? How has the church lived out this this understanding of prophetic prophetic wisdom that God owns all things and like the psalm says this morning, the, the kings and Caesars of the world don't really own anything. In the early years, in the early story of the church as laid out in the book of Acts in the first few centuries, the church is a subversive influence in the empire. 
the Romans had declared Pax Romana, Roman peace, which was accomplished by subjugating the population of their conquered territories. It was estimated that in Jesus' day, the conquered peoples of Palestine were paying 90% or more of their, ta of their income in taxes. While Rome was allowed to flourish, the occupied territories floundered, and the church was notable for taking care of everyone and demonstrating that religious and political empires, which demand loyalty to Rome, were not more powerful than love. Christians stayed in the communities where plagues were breaking out, and they helped the sick. When Rome demanded to be worshipped as a god, with Caesar as the avatar of the spirit of Rome, Christians by and large rejected this worship and served as a movement in the margins. When that religion demanded human sacrifice in arenas and coliseums, Christians by and large said, no thank you. While Christians never made up more than 10% of the Roman world, they remained a prominent force in the empire as a subversive movement. Roman emperors would write letters, how do we stop these people? And nothing they tried worked. The church had virtually no political power. It was a movement in the margins. But its role in the world was quite simple. To present an alternative community of love to a world that suffered under the Pax Romana. Then came Constantine. A Roman emperor who, in the, who a few hundred years after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus declared that his religion would be Christian. While he waited until the last minute to be baptized, under the belief that baptism would erase all of his prior sins, and continuing many of the rituals of Roman emperor worship, he said, I will be Christian, and Christianity will be legal. The church became a legal religion. Then Theodosius, the next emperor, came along and said, not only is Christianity legal, it is now the official religion of Rome. While there were very few empire-wide persecutions of the Christian faith, the church had to constantly answer the question, you're causing so much trouble, are you trying to take us over? The witness of the book of Acts is continual, where the, where the apostles say, nope, we're not interested in your throne. Your throne means nothing to us. But what happens a few hundred years later, when it does matter, all of a sudden? And bishops and priests are given palaces and castles are, and are welcomed into Caesar's house. The church suddenly was given radical openness in its communities and was no longer oppressed. No one persecuted. No one threw people out anymore for being Christian. And just like the Hasmonean dynasty gave power to the Sadducees in Jesus' day and stripped the faith of its prophetic voice, so the prophetic voice of the church was in the margins. And they had to ask the question, what is Caesar and what is ours? For sure, there were some reform movements that came after that, those deciding emperors. And there were monastic movements which challenged the powerful church. Many people, in fact, fled into the desert, away from the cities, because they saw what the church was becoming. It was during this time that the church set up all of its creeds and statements that said, this is what it means to be in. This is what it means to be out. This is where bishops would start declaring war on each other, and priests would start jockeying for political power, saying, this one's a heretic. And when the heretic would get exiled, the priest who threw them under the bus 
would get a shiny new office, a comfy new throne. The dominant metaphor of the church, despite some reform movements, was not the subversive alternative community. It was as chaplain and blessing giver to this empire. This continued throughout the centuries leading up to the Reformation, where it looked like things could change. The, the Reformation, of course, happening 500 years ago-ish. The scriptures were being given to the common person and often at great cost. No longer did you have to hear the inaccessible Latin that almost no one knew except for the priests. Now you were hearing scripture in French, German, and English. You were hearing the words of the prophets. You were hearing the words of Jesus in a language you could understand. And suddenly the theological systems that were holding everyone in place, keeping everyone under control, were, were falling away. As people were saying, I don't think Jesus sounds like someone who says that the kings are closer to God than us. I don't hear this where I can't be ac given access to the, to the family of God except by a priest. Peasants began to revolt all over the place. The empires, now called nations, were being challenged. The feudalism structures were falling apart. And people were saying, we don't have to listen to you anymore. You don't get to determine our value. What we're hearing determines our value. A revolution even occurred in the land where the famous reformer Martin Luther was preaching that people did not need the imperial hierarchy of the medieval church to access God, only the gift of grace. But Martin Luther also had enemies. And Martin Luther was being protected from his enemies by rich and powerful people. And so when they went to Martin Luther saying, what do we do with these peasant revolts? His answer was simple. Kill them all. This pattern continues today, where liberation movements of God are often squelched and diminished and reinterpreted to become a spiritual-only liberation. After the Reformation, different kings would choose different denominations and go to war with each other. And the political imagination of the church was held in golden handcuffs by the promise of empire. If perhaps it used to be Pax Romana, today it's Pax Christiana. This is all in the space for all of us. Just as each of us in our formative individual years have learned lessons that impact us today. So these formative years of the church for 1,500, 2,000 years have impacted our reactions and our values. The modern age brings with, that, brings with it pluralism and capitalism, redrawing the lines from kings and monarchy to corporations and shareholders. Theologies of liberation have emerged from the global south, those most impacted by the evils of empire. Although, in many seminaries and places of training, they are regarded as interesting, maybe worthy of an elective, but dangerous to put in the systematic theology course. Theologians from the margins are asking the crucial question, is, if God is love, why is our political imagination so caught up in gaining and keeping power? Why is there such a desire to live at the center when God has virtually nothing good to say about the center? Why is it that in a country free from established religion, we have yet to have a president who hasn't affirmed some version of the Christian faith, even the deists of our founding? Why is it that in a pluralistic United States, according to studies, we'd still not trust having an atheist as a president? 
Why is it that the theology created by the empire-approved mainstream white male, and then the rest is called liberation theology, as though liberation is its own special sector, where then we have theology proper, as it's called, which is what white guys have said God is like. And that God is usually indifferent, passive, and cold, and sovereign, and powerful. As Brian McLaren asks, why isn't liberation theology proper? And non-liberation theology, the deviation by which we have to ask, if your theology doesn't liberate, is it really of God? Indeed, the church is facing a failure of imagination that has more than run its course. Despite Jesus' unwillingness to be caught up in the trap of us versus them, the politicking of the religious and political empires of his day, the dominant church has not been so well self-differentiated. Alas, we often are more than excited to jump into the us versus them fray. Most of this time, the time, we don't even think this is a conscious choice. It's just a knee-jerk reaction to our conditioning of centuries of imperialized Christianity that has made us well-adjusted to indifference, or well-adjusted to, inju- well to injustice, and well-adapted to indifference, as Cornell West would say. Perhaps what is needed is a new imagination where there is only us. The, imagine, the imagination would start by seeing the places where we get suckered into the binary and ask if seeing the place and ask if there is another way. If maybe it isn't either or, us, them, demonizing, silencing. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not meaning let's just sit in the middle and be passive and make no, no positive stances. Certainly, I believe the new political imagination will include a call for justice. That, like my son's Micah, my son is Micah, he's three and a half, and his namesake is, in fact, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. What if that is our new political imagination? In 1976, there was a declaration of church, on church and state coming from Bossy, Switzerland. This is what they have to say about what the new political imagination might look like. The attitude of resistance will be adopted to serve society and even the state, because the state as well is called to be the servant of God and of the people. In fact, it was Tertullian in the 3rd century AD, or CE, who declared that the best way to honor the empire is to put it in its place. Now, we cannot do this work of imagining a new way to um, envision what is Caesar and what is God's from a place of blame. We cannot do it from our scapegoating reflex and say, it must be people, not me, who did this. But if we're able to interrupt our scapegoating and blaming, we may be able to find a higher consciousness ourselves where we can then invite the world into a higher consciousness. We truly see ourselves as a we and set our intention toward 1 Corinthians calls the common good. How might this look? There's a great story that comes from Kenya as told by David Guattari. There was a factory where people were routinely dying from industrial accidents created by unsafe working conditions. A humanitarian group came into this factory and saw the devastation. They said, something must be done about this. And so they bought an ambulance. 
to get the injured people to the hospital faster. This humanitarian group never said, why is it that this factory is in such terrible shape? That people are getting injured on the work, on the work site all the time. Writes David, those in authority welcome our humanitarian activities, but they do not like to hear the question why, because that is a political question. So sometimes we need to go beyond social activities, which you would call generosity and charity and, and giving, to the transformation of societies, to find where the root cause of the problem is. And this is taking political action. We cannot avoid action when there is something that must be done. If we are going to sort out what belongs to God and what belongs to Caesar, we must be willing to help and be willing to ask, why is this help needed in the first place? We must feed people and ask why there are so many hungry bellies. We must help people with rent and ask why the rent is going so high in the first place. We must invite people to the table and ask why there are so many different tables. I'm beginning to wish I could end this sermon on a more definite answer, perhaps a three-step process that would get us to a new political imagination. But to be honest, I think the challenge is too great for one sermon, one worship service, one prayer. But I do think the answer comes back to where we started our service today, with paying attention and setting intention. As we pay attention to the ways in which empire affects our thinking and our behavior, as we pay attention to the way empire marginalizes and excludes, as we pay attention to the way empire sets us versus them, winners and losers, we can interrupt those behaviors and become liberated to new behaviors and intention. As one more Cornell West quote, as he often says, free your mind and your behind will follow. <laughs> I think that ahead of us is a challenge where we are going to be expected to create experiments. Experiments of justice and joy. Experiments of radical affirmation and inclusion. Experiments of sacrificial love and openness. Experiments in advocate, advocacy in, organi in organizing, petitioning and resisting. I think the legacy of Constantinian Christianity is too ingrained in our imagination to be solved quickly, but it can be undone bit by bit as we listen to the margins, celebrate liberation, and walk with humility. Even though I have to end by saying I don't know the definite answer, I have great hope. Partially, because I believe that Holland United Church of Christ is up for an experiment or two. I trust that you will be people who work together for a new political imagination that will untangle the church from empire and forge a new world of faithfulness, hope, and love. And you'll do so in the name of the Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. Amen. And namaste.
invited to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Holland Area Arts Council in downtown Holland. And for more information, how to get involved, or to support our work, like us on Facebook or visit hollanducc.org. Thank you.